eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The literature of Jack London has long been given the short shrift by scholars. They say he wrote some good dog stories for boys, but beyond that, didn't showcase any literary genius or high-level craftsmanship. Well, my guest today begs to differ with this assessment. His name is Earl Labor. He's the preeminent Jack London scholar and 91 years young. I've had Earl on the podcast two previous times. The first to discuss his landmark Jack London biography, it's episode number 67, and the second to discuss his own memoir, The Far Music, and that's episode number 370. For this episode, I drove down to Earl's home in Shreveport, Louisiana to talk to Earl about the overlooked literary genius of Jack London and the big themes that London wrote about in his novels and short stories. We begin our discussion with Earl's story of how he became a Jack London scholar and why London's work was historically neglected by academics. We then dig into London's literary themes by first discussing how he used the Klondike as a symbolic proving ground for men and how success in this wilderness depended on one's ability to mold oneself to Jack's Northland code. Earl uses excerpts from my favorite London story in a far country as well as to build a fire in the call of the wild to showcase the tenets of this code as well as London's literary artistry. Earl then explains how London shifted his themes later in his career with his agrarian writing, how his wife Charmian changed his perception of real women and his female characters, and the influence psychologist Carl Jung had on London's last works. Consider this episode a masterclass on the literature of Jack London. After it's over, check out our show notes at awm.is London. All right, Earl Labor, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Brett. It's great to be here again. So we had you on, I'm going to say five years ago, six years ago, to talk about your Jack London biography. Then we had you on again to talk about your memoir, The Far Music, which I know a lot of our listeners enjoyed. This time, I've made a trip down to Shreveport, Louisiana. Come shake your hand because I wanted to meet you after all these years. And then to talk more about Jack London uh, particularly about the literary themes of Jack London, because that's what you spent your career writing about, researching about, lecturing about, was Jack London and his literature. So I think the first question I'd like to start off with is, how did you get started, or how did you become a Jack London scholar? I'm going back to uh, 1948, Brett, a professor at SMU, named George Bond, taught a course in the American novel. And among the novels he chose, not only Hemingway and Faulkner and Fitzgerald, he chose an obscure novel by Jack London titled Martin Eden. My best friend, P.B. Lindsay, a combat veteran from the Second World War, a couple of years older, but much older in many ways, took that course and told me, Earl, Martin Eden is a very powerful novel. 
you need to read it. At that time, I had some other interests, mostly extra literary. But four years later, I'm on a weekend pass to New York City from the Recruit Training Center in Bainbridge, Maryland, downtown Manhattan, just strolling around, looking at the sights, walked into this newsstand and saw a 25-cent penguin paperback of Martin Eden. Well, my friend had recommended it. I thought I'd look at it. I took it down and bought it, put it uh, in my hip pocket to take back to the bus. I started reading it on the bus back to the base. Could not put it down, Brad. I stayed up all night. I didn't warm up exactly. I stayed in my bunk with my flashlight on. I was so fascinated with that novel. And I said, when I go back to get a Ph.D., Jack London is going to be my subject. And that was the beginning of my serious study. Now, it was a while before I got to that because I had some other obligations at the time. Uh, Uncle Sam in the military, uh, training recruits at uh, uh, that base in Maryland. Also, I spent some time on a, a USS Hail Destroyer. But when I got out of the Navy, I had a family, a wife and a child, and I had to have a job. So I went to work for Hager uh, Company in Dallas. Men's Slacks was really lucky in terms of that was uh, an up-and-growing company. But uh, I found that the intellectual challenge of men's pants wore a bit thin after about six weeks. I was doing okay from their point of view, but I wanted to get back into teaching. So the same professor, George Bond, called me one Saturday morning in early 1955 and said, Earl, there's a little college, liberal arts college over in Shreveport looking for an instructor. If you're interested in getting back into teaching, I'll recommend you. Three weeks later, I was teaching at Centenary College and uh, have been teaching on and off at Centenary ever since then until my retirement a few years ago. Took off a few years for various things I may have mentioned in some of my early work, such as a uh, Fulbright lectureship in Denmark for a year, et cetera, et cetera. But mainly I've been teaching and working on Jack London ever since so for your PhD, you did the first major study on Jack London as a true literary artist, and you were really breaking new ground because for a long time, the literary establishment didn't take London's work seriously, and very few scholars had studied his craftsmanship. Why was that, and what's the status of London today in literature, particularly in terms of scholarship? Well, it's, it's on the rise for sure, has been for the past generation or so. It's amazing to see what's happened in the last couple of decades, but for a long time, he was dismissed as little more, as I say, than a hack writer for adventure stories and what have you. Fortunately, there have been a number of breakthroughs just in the last two or three decades. I, actually, to be honest, Brett, I think over the past half century or so, I have a lecture that I give sometimes on the politics of literary reputation. 
and I explained to my students, I said, look, the books you read, the ones you read in high school and many that you read in college were not handed down to Moses on that tablet that uh, they're selected by a certain group, and those are the the so-called elite. They decide what you're going to read. They decide, for example, you're going to read Shakespeare and maybe Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, which is fine, but they should be also assigning Jack London's The Sea Wolf or something in addition to Call of the Wild. Anyhow, London was not a part of the the group that makes those decisions. Now, you ask, for one thing, London was a Western writer, and they were not part of the Eastern establishment that pretty well dictated the the literary uh, selections or whatever uh, at the time in the 19th, even 20th century. Eric Miles Williamson uses the term the Ivy Mafia. That may not be quite fair, but I think it's kind of fun. Anyhow, the idea that it's those Easterners back in the 19th century, even early 20th century, centered around uh, Boston, New York, William Dean Howells was the leader of that group for a generation. Interesting that he encouraged writers like Amlin Garland, Stephen Crane, even Emily Dickinson. And here is London at the time, the most popular of all of them, and virtually ignored by William Dean Howells. Now, that's got to have been deliberate, I think. So... uh, All of that ties into what I call the politics of literary reputation, which has impeded the recognition of Jack for a number of years. But finally, we're getting that recognition as a result of what's been done over the past 50 years and certainly the last generation. My own student, Jeannie Campbell, has become Jeannie Campbell Reisman, started the Jack London Society in uh, about 19... 90 or so, and uh, Ken Brandt is currently the executive director of that. And, and just in the last few years, the Modern Language Association has published a collection of essays on London called Teaching Jack London that's been edited by Ken Brandt and Jeannie Reisman has over 20 essays by different scholars. Even more recently, the Oxford University Press has published a handbook of Jack London edited by Jay Williams that has more than 30 essays by different scholars in there, which says something about what's happened in Jack London and his status during the last uh, decade or two. So yeah, he's on the rise. Let's talk about some of the themes that Jack London wrote about during his career. And we'll get into detail about some of these things. But before we do that, could you give us just a big picture overview of sort of an outline of the themes that he wrote about both in his fiction and in, and in his nonfiction? I'm looking here, <laughs> and I'll simplify this a minute. I was just looking at my introduction to Portable. Thematically, London... London's works move from the foolishness of pride, ruthlessness of greed, 
blindness of racial prejudice and the senselessness of war to the indomitability of the human spirit, the unfailing salvation of true comradeship, and the ageless wisdom of the great mother and the water baby. I could talk later about the great mother and the archetype and the water baby, which is London's last story, which is very revealing. But in more general terms, I like to say that one of the overriding themes is love, love of adventure, love of life, love of humanity, love of nature, love of man for woman, comradeship, camaraderie, love of seeking, and what have you. It's, it's, it's a kind of passion that he has. And uh, my biography, I've talked about the seeking drive, for example, that London had in extreme measure that the neuroscientists have discovered generation ago is that basic drive along with fear and hunger, sex and the rest of it, that leads mammals to seek new adventures, even at the expense of food and, and fear sometimes. Anyhow, it's fascinating to see this at work. Trying to think of, of other things. Of course, the hatred of anything that was restricting, that depi- deprived human beings of, of their essential humanity and liberty or what have you. Those seem to be themes that run throughout his work. One theme that he, I think it was a common theme throughout all of his work, is this idea of man versus nature. And nature being sort of a, a proving ground for men. And I think you've written about this, that as, as nature, there's like four types of environments that London wrote about where you see this motif of man versus nature. Can you talk a bit about that? Uh, talking about symbolic wilderness? Symbolic wilderness. Yeah. I'm going back now about, what, 50 more years. And a uh, Texas scholar, University of Texas scholar named Gordon Mills published a very fine article in uh, 19th century fiction on the symbolic wilderness contrasting James Fenimore Cooper's version of that wilderness with Jack London's, saying that Fenimore Cooper's wilderness was pretty consistent and what have you, but that Jack London's version of the symbolic wilderness was uh, uh, confusing and didn't seem to have any uh, sense of uh, organization or what have you. So I thought about it. I said, well, I don't think Gordon Mills has read Jack London's work carefully enough. There are four different versions. The Northland, then there's the Polynesia, which I call London's Paradise Lost, and there's Melanesia, which I call the Inferno, and then there's the Valley of the Moon, which is Jack London's pastoral wilderness or what have you. And each has its own distinctive characteristics. The uh, qualities that a man needs to survive in the Northland are totally different from what he needs to survive in Melanesia. In the Northland, I think these are spelled out pretty clearly in the 
opening um, in a far country. I think one of your own favorite stories. My favorite if you story. Give me a minute. I'd like to read that. Let's do it because it's my favorite. It's the favorite thing that Jack London ever wrote. Brett, this spells it out. I'm reading the beginning of In a Far Country, which I call an exemplum. In other words, if a preacher is delivering a sermon, he wants to tell um, a story, a pretty um, what uh, dramatic story to illustrate his sermon, and that's sometimes called an exemplum, and that's what that's what we've got in a far country. And here's the sermon. When a man journeys into a far country, he must be prepared to forget many of the things he has learned and to acquire such customs as are inherent with the existence of the new land. He must abandon the old ideals, the old gods, and oftentimes he must reverse the very codes by which his conduct has hitherto been shaped. To those who have the protein faculty of adaptability, the novelty of such change may even be a source of pleasure. But to those who happen to be hardened in the ruts in which they were created, the pressure of the altered environment is unbearable. They chafe in body and in spirit under the new restrictions, which they do not understand. This chafing is bound to act and react, producing diverse evils, leading to various misfortunes. It were better for the man who cannot fit himself to the new groove to return to his own country. If he delay too long, he will surely die. The man who turns his back upon the comforts of an elder civilization to face the savage youth, the primordial simplicity of the North, may estimate success at an inverse ratio to the quantity and quality of his hopelessly fixed habits. He will soon discover, if he be a fit candidate, that the material habits are the less important. The exchange of such things as a dainty menu for rough fare of the stiff leather shoe for the soft, shapeless moxen of the feather bed for a couch in the snow is, after all, a very easy matter. But his pinch will come in learning properly to shape his mind's attitude toward all things and especially toward his fellow man. For the courtesies, for the courtesies of ordinary life, he must substitute unselfishness, forbearance, and tolerance. Thus and thus only can he gain the, that pearl of great price, true comradeship. And that's the key, I think, to the Northland Code and the two incapables in the for a country as it spells out, cannot do that. They're, they're totally un, un, unfitted to come up there in the first place and they pay the price. Well, yeah, I think what I love about the the intro to In a Far Country is that it perfectly encapsulates and summarizes Jack London's, what you call the Northland Code. 
So, you know, from what that we just read there, what you just read there, part of the Northland code is adaptability. Exactly. It's also true comradeship. Exactly. Those seem like to be the two important things for London when it came to the Northland code. Both are important. There's another factor he doesn't mention here. He mentions later, in addition to uh, adaptability, camaraderie, what have you, all that, there's another factor that comes up very clearly in that great classic, To Build a Fire. And uh, we're talking about the man who does not have a name in this version. Incidentally, I've seen the original manuscript, and at first when he started this story, Jack London gave the man a name. I think, as I recollect, something like John Collins. But after about uh, a thousand words, meaning after, I think, the first day, he comes back and says, this story would be more effective if I made this every man instead of a specific man. Now, by the way, you know, there's an early version of the story that we found. Uh, King Hendricks and I found the summer I was working with him out at Utah State that was published, what, say, six years earlier in Youth Companion, totally different from this by the same title. But the young man in there is given a name and he survives. But this guy's not going to make it. And here's why. By the way, London opens this story talking about how weird the situation is up there, very, very cold, 70-something degrees below zero, no sun in the sky. But all this, the mysterious, far-reaching airline trail, the absence of sun from the sky, the tremendous cold, the strangeness and weirdness of it all, made no impression on the man. It was not because he was long used to it. He was a newcomer in the land at Chichaquo, and this was his first winter. The trouble with him was that he was without imagination. He was quick and alert in the things of life, but only in the things and not in the significances. 50 degrees below zero meant 80-odd degrees of frost. Such fact impressed him as being cold and uncomfortable, and that was all. It did not lead him to meditate upon his frailty as a creature of temperature and upon man's frailty in general, able only to live within certain narrow limits of heat and cold, and from there on did not lead him to to the conjectural field of immortality and man's place in the universe. Now, this is a masterstroke of the artist. In other words, here's a story that is so deftly and beautifully woven together. The reader doesn't realize that suddenly there's a profound philosophical message in this story. It's more than about just a man's getting (laughs) cold and dying from freezing to death. But there's another message underlying this, which he's just 
slipped in there, but he's done it so so deftly, so artistically. You read right on through and don't don't stumble over it. It's a wonderful uh, example of what London was going was doing later on. I'll talk about how he does that in the Call of the Wild. But anyhow, I wanted to bring in as a factor, and he mentions that other places too, the importance of imagination if you're going to make it up there. And later on when he's talking about survival in, the, uh, in, the, in Melanesia, he said one of the things there to survive, whoever going to make it doesn't need any imagination. He's just got to be as mean as the savages around there and resort to stuff that as, as bad as they do. It's totally different from the Northland. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. 
masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. And now back to the show. Well, so back to this idea of imagination and going back to in a far country, I think it's related to one of the, the things that seem to be wrong or something that, that London talks about, not only in a far country, but you see it in The Call of the Wild, White Fang. London went up to the Klondike when people were going up there for the gold rush. But in his stories, he talks about one of the problems with the incapables and some of the other characters who don't fare well in the Klondike is that they went up there with impure intentions, almost. They didn't have the right intention. Like with the incapables, they went, they didn't, London said they, they had sentimentality about the Klondike, but they didn't have the spirit of true romance and adventure. What was the difference in London's mind? Well, in London's two? mind, I mean, sentimentality is this illusion that you're going up having a beautiful, what, uh, a lovely uh, time out with nature or whatever, going to have a, uh, uh, going to have a pretty easy time just enjoying the beauties of, of nature without really understanding the reality of the situation. And that's, uh, I think, Percy Cufford is the uh, dilettante who thinks that he's just, uh, uh, he's read a lot of romantic uh, stuff about the animals, et cetera. It's going to be some kind of wonderland up there, winter wonderland, which, of course, it's not. And the other with uh, Weatherby, Carter Weatherby, I think, is going just for strictly materialistic gain or whatever thinks he's going to become a millionaire without having to do too much to achieve that. But the idea of true adventure, I'm going back to sea again. You you want to go regardless of the danger, and you want to find out what the new frontiers are like. You're willing to go ahead and even risk your life to uh, to grow, to find uh Find out what your limits might be and test them. Find out what nature is really like, speaking realistically. And, and speaking about in the far country, you've written about this. You make the case that the incapables, as you call them, London used, that, used those characters as a way to explore the seven deadly sins. <laughs> what was going on there? So was this actually a sermon? 
<laughs> I got something. I had fun with that, but uh, I went. If you give me a minute, I'll sure. check it out here. After an overeager show of industrious cooperation, they abandon the austere discipline of the code. Uh, discipline is a key. Their spiritual degeneration as they succumb to each of the seven deadly sins is initially dramatized in their social relationship. First, pride is manifest in a foolish arrogance that precludes the mutual trust requisite to survival in the wilderness. Mutual trust also a key there. The, I'm quoting here, the one was a lower class man who considered himself a gentleman, and the other was a gentleman who knew himself to be such. From this, it may be remarked that a man can be a gentleman without possessing the first instinct of true comradeship. Next appears lust as they consume with sensual promiscuity their supply of sugar, mixing it with hot water and then dissipating, quote, the rich white syrup over their flapjacks and bread crust. This is followed by sloth as they sink into a lethargy that makes them rebel at the performance of the smallest chore, including washing and personal cleanliness, and for that matter, common decency. Accelerated by gluttony, their moral deterioration now begins to externalize itself in their physical appearance. I'm afraid they were not getting their proper shares, and in order that they may not be robbed, they fell to gorging themselves. In the absence of fresh vegetables and exercise, the blood became impoverished and a loathsome purplish rash crept over their bodies. Next, their muscles and joints began to swell, the flesh turning black, while their mouths, gums, and lips took on the color of rich cream. Instead of being drawn together by their misery, each gloated over the other's symptoms as the scurvy took its course. Covetousness and envy appear when they divide their sugar supply and hide their shares from each other, obsessed with the fear of losing the precious stuff. The last of the cardinal sins, anger, is delayed a while by another trouble, the fear of the north. And then finally, at the very end, they, that's when they kill each other, at the very end of the thing. That's the anger. So anyhow, there's a lot in between there, but that gives you at least a rough idea. As I say, I was having some fun just playing with that. There's so much in that story, I think, is one of his underrated stories. It's really worth a, a great... It says so much about the code and also about London's literary artistry. Yeah, I think I agree. You mentioned The Call of the Wild. And so that's that's in the news. They're, they've got a new movie coming out based off The Call of the Wild, Disney does, starring Harrison Ford. What themes 
does London talk about in the Call of the Wild that you think hit on the idea of the Northland Code? Well, we're back again to adaptability in the Call of the Wild. I mean, that's that's certainly one reason that uh, Buck is able to survive because he adapts even though it requires him to become something very different from what he was as the sort of pet ranch dog back on on the ranch down in California, et cetera. A kind of the code that I think animals live by is different from the Northland code that men live by in some ways. For example, with the animals and with Buck, sometimes he has to kill to survive. And that's not generally the case with the men in the Northland Code. But let's go back after he managed. He has the will to uh, take over, to take control of the, the team and what have you. He's tough, he's strong, but he's got spirit. And finally, though it's love that prevails, it's his love for John Thornton that really saves him at the end. Of course, to become the, 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 what, the supernatural ghost dog of the North, he has to even leave John Thornton. And I, I want to talk at some point about the call of the wild and the fact there's so much more there than just a dog story whenever you're ready to do that. Let's, let's, do, let's move right into that. Let's talk about that. Go ahead. Let me talk a little bit about the uh, universal appeal of this novel. It's been translated into nearly 100 different languages, I think. And it's obviously more than a good dog story. It's that, but much more. And I wanted to talk about The Call of the Wild as such a rich uh, work in terms of thematic richness and also literary artistry. The first six chapters are pretty matter-of-fact. I think it starts, the book starts with something. Buck did not read the newspapers. That's pretty matter-of-fact. Interesting, he didn't say that Buck can't read. He just said, Buck did not read the newspapers, but that's pretty, that's state and matter of fact. And the first six chapters are quite realistic and what have you, but there's one section that is outstanding, and I want to read that. <clears throat> there's an ecstasy that marks the summit of life, beyond which life cannot rise. Such is the paradox of living. This ecstasy comes when one is most alive, and it comes as a complete forgetfulness that one is alive. This ecstasy, this forgetfulness of living, comes to the artist, caught up and out of himself and in a sheet of flame. It comes to the soldier, war mad on a stricken Failed and refusing quarter. It came to Buck, leading the pack, sounding the old wolf cry, straining after the food that was alive that fled swiftly before him through the moonlight. He was sounding the deeps of his nature and the parts of his nature that were deeper than he 
going back into the womb of time. He was mastered by the sheer surging of life, the tidal wave of being, the perfect joy of each separate muscle, joint, and sinew, and it was everything that was not death. It was a glow and rampant, expressing itself in movement, flying exultantly under the stars and over the face of dead matter that did not move. I think that that's poetry there. And it's interesting that he talks about that. In fact, I, uh, I quote it in uh, my biography in terms of Jack's own uh, ecstasy in, in writing, you know. I mean, he had passion that I think uh, enabled him to write some of his best work there. I think more than one uh, writer has talked about being a kind of zone when you're writing. We had a visitor on campus a few years ago said that uh, the uh, scientists actually measured there's an increase, slight increase in brain temperature when we get into that creative zone. Anyhow, let me move quickly as possible to the seventh chapter, the sounding of the call. By the way, seven is the most significant of numbers, archetypally speaking, signifying the completion of a cycle and some other things. And what has begun up to this point, very matter-of-factly, note how the language changes at the very beginning of this seventh chapter. When Buck earned $1,600 in five minutes for John Thornton, he made it possible for his master to pay off certain debts and the journey with his partners. That's pretty matter-of-fact, but note what happens here. Journey into the East, that's capitalized, after a fabled lost mine, the history of which was as old as the history of the country. Many men had sought it, few had found it, and even more than a few there were who had never returned from the quest. This lost mine was steeped in tragedy and shrouded in mystery. No one knew of the first man. And the oldest tradition before God. Uh, anyhow, I'm going to stop and move down a ways. Look at those key words like fabled and tragedy, mystery, that indicate we're in a different world now. We're moving into a kind of supernatural world. And note at the bottom of that page, the months came and went, back and forth they twisted through the uncharted vastness where no men were and yet where men had been if the lost cabin were true. They went across divides in summer blizzards, shivered under the midnight sun on naked mountains between the timberline and eternal snows, dropped into summer valleys amid swarming gnats and flies, and in the shadows of glaciers picked strawberries and flowers as ripe and fair as any of the Southland could boast. 
in the fall of the year, they penetrated a weird lake country, sad and silent, where wildfowl, wildfowl had been, but where then there were there was no life, no sign of life, only the blowing of chill winds, the forming of ice in sheltered places, and the melancholy rippling of waves on lonely beaches. That's poetry again. But here's the point that I, I wanted to make. Stop and think what these guys have been through and what they must look like. Be interested in seeing what uh, Harrison Ford and his partners look like in the, in the movie there. They got to be pretty tough hombres to survive what they do up there. You can imagine they would, if they see some wild strawberries out there, they haven't eaten anything except probably pemmican or dried beef or something for a good while, jerky or whatever. They eat some strawberries, but they're picking flowers. It just doesn't fit, does it? But you don't notice because he's woven this thing so well uh, in terms of describing. You don't stumble over that at all. I'm, I'm talking, this is a, an instance of London's literary artistry and the way he weaves these moods for you. So I just want to point that out in terms of the call of the wild. So the relationship between man and nature that Jack experienced in the Klondike was more adversarial. But he also experienced a different relationship between man and nature through his work on his beauty ranch in Glen Ellen, California, where he was a pioneer in organic farming, and he tried to make what was worn-out land fruitful again. What books did Jack write about his ranching and farming experience? Three uh, novels particularly. The first was Burning Daylight, and the second was Valley of the Moon. That's his longest novel. And the third was Little Lady of the Big House. Burning Daylight, I think, is his most neglected novel. I like it. As far as I know, Brad, it's the only novel in which the uh, major character epitomizes all three American archetypal heroes. The hero is frontiersman. The hero is a businessman. The hero is yeoman farmer, all in one character. And it's, 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 uh, I think it's amusing. I'm not saying it's one of his great novels, but it's fun to read see what he does so in these agrarian stories was there did jack london develop a code similar to the northland code that someone had to live by in order to thrive as a farmer i think so in other words in terms of camaraderie decency honesty but love of land here there's an interesting story his first story that he wrote after moving into the valley of the moon 1905 or so, All Gold Canyon. And you've got this character, Bill, who is a prospector on some place like the ranch down there, prospecting for gold. And he finds this big uh, gold pocket and desecrates the hillside to get the gold. And the process almost gets killed by a stranger that's been watched him and, until he uncovers the gold and comes up and shoots him. Fortunately, he manages to survive, but 
you've got something of the Northland type coming down there, not loving the land, just say, but desecrating that beautiful place. So there's a message there that Jack is trying to convey that he's getting the same attitude in terms of treatment of nature doesn't work in the pastoral garden or wilderness the way it did up in the frozen Northland. But in terms of the spirit, camaraderie, decency, honesty, love of man and what have you, uh, it's, it's essentially the same. Incidentally, we might mention that uh, London's attitude toward women changed significantly after meeting Charmin from uh, what it was in the early stuff. You want to talk about yeah, that? At some let's point. let's talk about that right now. So, yeah, his he was married twice. His first wife, uh, they separated, right? And then he met Charmin. Like, tell us about their relationship and how it influenced his writing. He he married Bessie Mattern for the wrong reasons. And that's a terrible mistake for everybody. And, I mean, we're still paying the price in terms of the damage to the folks, to the offspring, or uh, all that. It's so sad. At first, neither of them really loved each other. It was a marriage of convenience. She just lost her fiancé, Fred Jacobs, uh, to, uh, I think, some kind of ailment when he was on a troop ship going to the Philippines. I've forgotten now what, what he was suffering from. But uh, uh, they'd been friends for years, and he felt, well, I need to get married to settle down and have uh, uh, a good mother for seven Anglo-Saxon sons or whatever. Turned out that Bessie uh, did love him, but uh, he never really loved her. They had two daughters. Meanwhile, he was having a kind of affair uh, with Anna Strunsky, I mean, never consummated, but in terms of uh, uh, somebody who could relate to intellectually and personally more closely than he could with Bessie. See, he was a party guy. He loved fun and loved crowds and what have you and loved to entertain people. And Bessie didn't like that at all. So they were just not compatible. And finally, I guess it was summer of 1903 or so, he fell in love with Charmian and madly, literally madly in love. If you read my biography, you'll see some of those early love letters where he just uh, absolutely beside himself. He never met a woman quite like that. I wish I had it handy. I could describe her. She was the new woman in many ways. Uh, she was very feminine, but at the same same time, she was tough. She was had a will of her own, but she was smart enough to know how to get along with him. And uh, she was very attractive, which doesn't come out in her pictures. Milo Shepard, Jack London's great nephew, knew her very well for many years and, and had tremendous admiration for her. He said even when she was in her 60s, she could turn men's heads when she walked into a room. So Charming was something special. And that as from her that he evolved the idea of the mate woman, not just uh, in any kind of 
animalistic sense or whatever, but a true mate in terms of an equal in, on many res, in many respects. And loved her until the day he died, and she loved him, of course. Incidentally, speaking of being attractive, Houdini <laughs> had an affair with her after his death, wanted to marry her, but she didn't want to marry Houdini. In fact, she didn't. She didn't want to marry anybody after Jack, I guess. Yeah, this idea of mate woman. Like, they called each other mate. And how, how do you see this idea of the mate woman? Does it come up in London's literature and his oh, stories? Yeah, yeah. It comes up, uh, let's say, I think in Burning Daylight. Certain, in one sense, it comes up in uh, The uh, Sea Wolf with Maud Brewster as his mate. So Maud, I think, may be the first character in his novels based on Charmian. So it's certainly there. And at some point, by the way, you mentioned London's concept of masculinity. Yeah. And I, I think that's very important. There's there's a section I'd like to read about that pretty soon, but let me mention characters that exemplify masculinity. John Thornton, of course, in The Call of Wild, Whedon Scott in White Fang, and I think even Humphrey Van Weyden in The Sea Wolf. It's fascinating, particularly in The Sea Wolf, because Humphrey is a work in progress. He comes on board the wolf, excuse me, Wolf Larson's ship, the ghost, as a kind of neuter, a sissy, and Larson makes a man out of him. Larson's too much of a man. He's a, there's a section in The Sea Wolf where Humphrey is talking about these guys. They need a little influence from women there. It's, uh, their world is, is warped in a sense. So here is Wolf Larson making a man in a sense, giving Humphrey that masculinity, but he needs something else. He needs that feminine touch, and that's where Maud uh, Brewster comes in to make him the complete man. And there's a section even in To the Man on Trail I wanted to read to you when we get a chance. Shall I do that now? Well, let's do that. Let's talk about that. Let's do that. All right. I'm back to a very early story. The first story published in the Overland Monthly, To the Man on Trail. By the way, Malamute Kid, who's the kind of high priest of the Northland Code, is another example of the true man or whatever. And in this story, he's sort of our, uh, he's a character we see the events on, through whose eyes we see the events unfold. Here he is. The talk soon became impersonal, harking back to the trails of childhood. As the younger, a young stranger ate of the rude fare. By the way, this is a man named Jack Westendale who's just come in as a man on trail to join the group. Incidentally, this is a Christmas party that's going on in this story. Interesting Christmas party. All right. Malamute kid attentively, attentively studied his face. Nor was he long in deciding that it was fair, honest, and open that he liked it. 
still youthful, the lines had been firmly traced by toil and hardship. Though genial in conversation and mild when at rest, the blue eyes gave promise of the hard steel glitter that comes when called into action, especially against odds. The heavy jaw and square-cut chin demonstrated rugged pertinacity and indomitability. Nor, though the attributes of the lion were there, was there wanting a certain softness, the hint of womanliness, womanliness which bespoke the emotional nature. So there you've got the qualities of both sexes in a sense, both accepted qualities of masculinity and femininity in one character without having the kind of problem that you got with Wolf Larson, who dies, I think, symbolically, as well as literally in the sea wolf. Also, there's a section that Arnold Genthe talks about. This is a comment by a famous portrait artist, Arnold Genthe, described in London, as I say most accurately, quote, Jack London had a poignantly sensitive face. His were the eyes of a dreamer, and there was an almost feminine wistfulness about him. And yet at the same time, he gave the feeling of a terrible and unconquerable physical force. So I think that pretty well describes London and his idea of the masculinity as well. Well, this idea of needing masculine and feminine energies combined, this sounds like Jung, the psychologist Carl Jung. And you talk about this in your biography, that at the end of his career, at the end of his life, that's when London discovered Jung in his writings. And it started to give more of an esoteric bent to Jack's thinking, whereas formerly he was, he was a romantic, but he was also a, a materialist. And you make the case that we were on the cusp of some of London's greatest work with this discovery of Jung. But you also make the case that even before, even in the Klondike stories, you see Jungian ideas pop up. Can, can you talk a little bit about Jung's influence on London's work and thought? It's fascinating to me, Brett, because he's got what Jung calls the primordial vision and the stuff I just read, for example, from The Call of the Wild indicates his sense of being tuned into myth and what have you, myth and archetypes without being conscious of it. In fact, early reviewers saw some stuff in The Call of the Wild that was more than just a dog story. And he said, well, I wasn't aware of it. I didn't intend it, (laughs) but obviously it was there. And that's the nature of the primordial vision uh, when when it's at work. The writer feels it and writes it, creates it, without being fully aware. Much of his richest work uh, is informed by what Jung would call archetypes and myth and what have you. But what happened just a few months before he died, he got a copy of Beatrice Hengel's brand-new revision 
or excuse me, not revision, translation of Jung's theories. And he started reading that and came to his wife, Charm, and says, I'm standing on the edge of a world so new and wonderful and terrible, I'm almost afraid to look over into it. But that's what he'd been doing all those years. And, of course, he did look over into it. And the last few stories he wrote, he was deliberately employing union theory. And, of course, the final story, The Water Baby, which I could quote from in a moment here, is obviously union. But one of his richest stories, The Red One, and uh, I thought originally, since he had written that in... Uh, I think May 1916, that was the first story he wrote after discovering Jung because there's so much there that is archetypal and mythical and is a story I recommend to everybody. It's the same motif that Kubrick used in 2001 based on Arthur C. Clarke's story, The Sentinel. Of course, Clarke, I co-wrote uh, 2001, I think, with Kubrick. And one of my students, uh, after reading the Sentinel in my science fiction class, wrote to Clark and got an answer. Mr. Clark, had you read Jack London's The Red One? And Clark actually answered and said, no, but I wish I had, you know, because the similarities. Anyhow, I recommend the story for a number of reasons. But I found out that uh, London had not read Jung at that time. So there's the primordial vision again. But it turns out that uh, those half dozen, I think, five or six stories he read based on Jung, finally with The Water Baby, are clearly based on Jungian theory. And as far as I know, London's the first one to do that. Well, let's talk. You said you want to read something from The Water Baby to give us an idea of this. Want to go ahead and do that? It's a totally different... Have you read it? I have not, no. It's a totally different story. We're talking now about The Water Baby, which is the last story Jack wrote before he died. It was written just a few months, I think maybe a little more than a month before his death. And uh, it's totally different from the other earlier stuff in that there's almost no action Mostly it's dialogue between two men, a young fellow named John Lacana, and that's Jack London's Hawaiian name, and an old man named Kohukumu, and that's the Hawaiian for voice of wisdom or, or old man of wisdom or what have you. And... The young man is, they're sitting out in a boat offshore talking, and the young man has got a headache and not feeling too well. The old native is in great shape. He's 70-something years old, been uh, evidently drinking at a big party the night before, raising hell, and and having a good time. He's feeling great. In fact, at one point, uh, dives down about 40 more feet and, and uh, brings up an octopus that he's been fishing for there. But they're having a dialogue, and the young man represents the rational Western 
approach, uh, civilized approach, what have you, logic and what have you. The old man is talking in terms of myth and what have you. And uh, here's a key passage, a couple of key passages. So let me explain to you the secret of my birth. The sea is my mother. I was born in a double canoe during the Kona Gale, the channel of Kohurai. From her, the sea, my mother, I received my strength. Whenever I returned to her arms, as for a breast clasp, as I have returned day, I grow strong immediately. I grow strong again and immediately. She, to me, is the milk, the giver of the life swords. <laughs> and uh, here's the young guy says, well, that's a queer religion you got there. And the old man says, when I was younger, I muddled my poor head over queer religions. But listen, oh, young wise one, to my elderly wisdom. This I know. As I grow old, I seek less for the truth from without me and more of the truth from within me. Why have I thought this thought of my return to my mother, my rebirth from my mother into the son? You do not know. I do not know. Say that without whisper of man's voice or printed word, without prompting from otherwhere, this thought has arisen from within me, from the deeps of me that are as deep as the sea. I am not a God. I do not make things. Therefore, I have not made this thought. I do not know its father, its mother. It is of old time before me, and therefore it is true. Man does not make truth. Man, if he be not blind, only recognizes truth when he sees it. There's much more to, in dreams than we know. Dreams go deep all the way down, maybe to before the beginning. Right. No, that's Jung. So we've talked about different things that Jack London hit on during his career. We talked about his Northland Code, this idea of adaptability, of true comradeship, of imagination. We've talked about his themes of agrarian writing and working with nature. And we talked about this idea of love, love that runs throughout his stories. What do you think, like after, when you taught, you know, seminars on Jack London, what did you hope your students would walk away with? Some big ideas um, that would change their life and they would maybe think differently because they read these Jack London stories? I think maybe a sense of adventure. In other words, moving out, seeking or what have you. Not, and by the way, not just physically, but intellectually seeking, that there's so much out there to be enjoyed if we'll just look for it and open our minds to it. And that there's a, a world of possibility in terms of relationships that we are maybe overlooking because of the various problems we've got socially now. We could go into what's going on in our currently restrictive society or what have you, 
but the sense of openness and simply enjoy life while we can. There's so much there which Jack was still seeking at the very end. There's so much life has to offer if we just open our eyes to it and get out and experience it. Uh, I think a sense of excitement, a sense of joie de vivre, love of our fellow human beings, and maybe not just human beings, but also the animals, because Jack absolutely loved animals as well as people, you know, especially horses and dogs. Those are things I think they may have found. Uh, also, uh, a general uh, sense of uh, excitement that they may have been missed in, in their daily lives or whatever. And, and how has Jack London changed your life? <laughs> I mean, you've spent how many decades? <laughs> well, I think he's done a lot for me in terms of relationships. It's amazing that the uh, uh, places I've been and uh, people I've met and the number of people out there who are absolutely uh, taken with Jack London for one reason or another most of what we've been discussing today, that there's a sense of openness there to, to, to London that you may not find in other authors. There's so many different possibilities for living if you just open yourself up to them. Fantastic. Well, Earl, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for having us here down in Shreveport. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. My guest today was Earl Labor. He's a preeminent Jack London scholar, also the author of the landmark Jack London biography, Jack London in American Life. Earl also wrote the foreword to the re-release from Penguin Classics of White Fang, Call the Wild, and other short stories. Both are available on Amazon.com. Just look up Earl Labor. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash London, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years, including a series on Jack London. Go check that out. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout to get a free month trial. Once you're signed up, you can download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay, reminding you not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.